Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain with JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us today. Our study is in the book of Luke, and we are in the ninth chapter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the ninth chapter of Luke to verse 28. Let's get into it. Now, last time, Jesus extended his invitation to take up the cross and to follow him. And we took a look at what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, now we're going to take a look at the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, this glorious transformation of the appearance of Christ is the most significant event between his birth and his passion. Both the transformation itself and the divine commentary expressed in the voice from heaven that declared Jesus Christ to be the beloved Son of God. Now Luke emphasizes a further dimension of the event, the suffering that lay ahead of God's chosen servant. In addition to the main elements of the transfiguration itself and the words from heaven, the narrative contains several motifs of deep significance. The eight-day interlude, the mountain, Moses and Elijah, Jesus' impending departure, the shelters and the cloud. And there's two frames of reference, one past and one future, that will help us to understand these motifs. Now, one is the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt with the events at Mount Sinai, especially Moses' experience on the mount. And the other is the second coming of Christ, the parousia. And that term simply means it's just another way of saying the second coming of Christ. It describes the second coming. Sometimes you'll run into those words from other pastors and stuff, and you wonder, what is that word? That's what it means. So if you'll turn with me to our scriptures, to verse 28, let's go ahead and, and read about the transfiguration. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said? Now while he was saying this, a cloud came over and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Now in verse 28, <clears throat> the transfiguration occurred about a week after Peter's confession of Jesus. So about eight days later, that Jesus took Peter, John, and James, and they went up together on the mountain to pray. Now, Peter, James, and John, they had been taken into Jesus' confidence elsewhere in other events. And the location of this mountain is unknown, although 
the high snow-capped Mount Hermon is a likely choice. There may be a connection here with the amount of time Moses spent on Mount Sinai before God spoke to him. And in verse 29, once again, Luke, Jesus is at prayer. As the Lord was praying, his outward appearance began to change. We have here the narrative of Christ's transfiguration. An intriguing truth that among the things that prayer changes is a man's countenance. His face glowed with a bright radiance, and his robe gleamed with dazzling whiteness. As mentioned above, this prefigured the glory, which would be his during his coming kingdom. Now, while he was here on earth, his glory was ordinarily veiled in his body of flesh. He was here in humiliation as a bond slave, but during the millennium, his glory will be fully revealed. All will see him in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. We are told that Christ had this honor put upon him when he was praying. He went up into a mountain to pray, as he frequently, frequently did, and as he prayed, he was transfigured. When Christ humbled himself to pray, he was thus exalted. He knew before that this was designed for Christ at this time, and therefore he seeks it by prayer. Christ seeks out the favors that were purposed for him and were promised to him. And he intended to put an honor upon the duty of prayer and to recommend it to us. It is a transfiguring, transforming duty for our hearts to be elevated and enlarged in prayer. So through it, we can behold the glory of the Lord. We shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory. By prayer, we receive wisdom, we receive grace and joy, which makes the face to shine. Now, Luke doesn't use the word transfigured, which Matthew and Mark used, perhaps because it had been used so much in the pagan theology, but he makes use of a phrase that is equivalent. So Luke omits the actual word transfigured, possibly to avoid a term that, again, may have been suggested with Hellenistic ideas of an epiphany, the appearance of a God. And when I say God in that tense, I mean a lowercase g, a false God, if you will. Now, instead, he describes the remarkable alteration of Jesus's face and the dazzling whiteness of his clothing. The fashion of his countenance was another thing from what it had been. His face shone far beyond what even Moses' face did when he came down from Mount Sinai. And Jesus' raiment was white and glistering. It was bright like lightning, so that he seemed to be arrayed all with light, to cover himself with light as with a garment. So in verses 30 and 31, <clears throat> we have Moses and Elijah who also appear in this scene of this supernatural glory, though Luke describes them as ordinary men. Now, why these two? Well, Moses had a mountaintop experience at Sinai, 
his face shone. He was both a lawgiver and he was also a prophet. So indeed, he was in a way a prototype of Jesus. Now, Elijah was not only a prophet, but was also related to the law of Moses as symbolizing the one who would one day turn people's hearts back to the covenant. In other words, Moses is a typologic a typological figure who reminds us of the past, especially the Exodus. Now, while Elijah is an eschatological figure who points to the future as a precursor of the Messiah. Now, each man was among the most highly respected Old Testament figures. Both of them had one distinctive thing in common, their strange departure from this world. So in summary, the presence of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration draws attention to one, the place of Jesus in continuing the redemptive work of God from the Exodus to the future eschatological consummation, which is the things pertaining to the end history and the fulfillment of God's kingdom. Secondly, to the appropriateness of Jesus' association with heavenly figures, and thirdly, to the superiority of Jesus over even these great and divinely favored heroes of Israel's past. Now, Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about his decease, or Jesus's departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It points to Jesus's death, and recalls the redemptive work of God in the exodus from Egypt. Now, Jesus' coming death was one that he would deliberately accomplish. Luke portrays Jesus as moving unhurriedly toward the accomplishment of his goals. He specifies Jerusalem as the city of destiny for Jesus. And note that his death is here spoken of as an accomplishment. And also note that death is simply an exodus, not cessation of existence. Existence of yourself is not going to cease to exist, but you are departing from one place to another. So in verse 32, the writers of the gospel use fear and sleepiness to indicate the slowness of the disciples to understand and to believe. They were far from alert during the conversation with Moses and Elijah about Jesus's approaching passion, and the spectacular scene aroused them thoroughly. The disciples were sleepy while all this is going on, and to note that the very same disciples who were asleep during a vision of glory were also found sleeping during the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we will get to. Now, flesh and blood does indeed need to be change before it can enter heaven. Our poor, weak bodies can neither watch with Christ in his time of trial, nor keep awake with him in his glorification. Our physical constitution must be greatly altered before we can enjoy heaven. So in verse 33, when they were fully awake, they saw the bright outshining of Christ's glory. In an effort to preserve the sacred character of the occasion, Peter proposed erecting three tabernacles, or three tents, if you will, one in honor of Jesus, one in honor of Moses, and one in honor of Elijah. 
Now, Peter's suggestion to make three shelters implies that he wanted to keep Moses and Elijah from leaving. But Luke points out that Peter's suggestion was highly inappropriate. And his idea was based upon zeal without knowledge. The idea of three shelters is the main problem. These would have been temporary shelters, such as were used at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Peter's proposal of the three presumably equal shelters may have implied a leveling perspective by putting Jesus on a par, if you will, with the others, an equal footing. But more than that, it, it connotes an intention to perpetuate the situation as though there were no departure for Jesus to accomplish. He still failed to grasp the significance of the passion prediction that was in verse 22 and its confirmation in verse 31. Now in verse 34, the cloud, like other elements in this narrative, can symbolize more than one thing. Among them, the cloud in the desert after the Exodus was. But clouds are also associated with the future coming of the Son of Man and with two prophets in Revelations chapter 11. There may be a possible reference uh, to the end times here or to the cloud that will appear during a future time of rest that's under the Messiah. But above all, the cloud symbolizes the glorious presence of God. Thought the disciples enter the cloud, a sense of the transcendence of God is retained as a voice comes from the cloud. And in verse 35, the voice speaking from the cloud is the awesome voice of God, the Father himself. The message expressed by the voice is so clear that any uncertainty about the meaning of some of the other aspects of this great scene become comparatively unimportant. The focus throughout the transfiguration is on the supreme person and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is expressly declared to be God's son, a declaration similar to that spoken by the voice at Jesus' baptism and later just before his passion. It affirms that Jesus is the one who is sent by God and who has God's authority. These words spoken by the voice that are spoken by God on these three occasions affirm beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is obedient and possesses divine authority for God's mission. Jesus is carrying out God's will. The words, this is my son, recall Psalms chapter 2, verse 7, and chosen points us to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, and the concept of the suffering servant found in the broader context of Isaiah. Listen to him is not only a command. God is telling them to hear and to obey Jesus. It is a correction of the human tendency to substitute human opinion for divine revelation. The words also fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, which predicts 
the coming of the prophet God would raise up and commands you to listen to him. Jesus alone is the true prophet, the chosen servant, and the Son of God. And lastly, with verse 36, as we close for this time, the scene ends with Jesus alone as the center of his disciples' attention. They remain silent about this event. And as soon as the voice was passed, Moses and Elijah had disappeared. Jesus alone was standing there. And it will be like this in the kingdom. He will have the preeminence in all things. He will not share his glory. The disciples left with a sense of awe so profound that they did not discuss the event with others. And with that, we will stop for this time. But next time, we are going to see Jesus healing a boy that has an evil spirit. So until then, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.